Welcome to RPG Rambling with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Hiya. I'm back from my wee exile to Northern Ireland. No worries. After seven weeks, I'm ready to get back to business. I, monkey business, that is. Today, Trevor Stamper joins me to discuss the use of antique printing equipment to commercially produce zines. Oh, I'm having to pay for a Zoom subscription. Try to get off cheap with Google Meeting for this episode. Well, I had some problems. So for a total of 10 bucks a month, that's 8 quid and 15 pence for the UK listeners, my costs are covered. If you're so inclined, throw some copper into the Patreon. Sisters and brothers, it's time to get rambling. Hello, Trevor. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing quite well. I am back in the USSA. That is awesome. Awesome. After, what, seven weeks in Ireland? Seven, seven weeks in Ireland. Yes, it was, uh, it was quite a um, odd sensation to arrive at the home airport, see a vast horizon with the sun blaring down. It felt very surreal. Um, <laughs> I, I do not recognize the strange orange orb in the sky yep it's true it's true when i lived in the uk i mean you know you used to used to walk outside when the sun shone and 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 actually hold the rays in your hand because they were precious (laughs) (laughs) they were not going to come often and you should uh you should definitely spend your time outside so yeah it wasn't we we did have some sunshine it it really wasn't full but the idea of just uh i think being in the city so mm-hmm. much and the sky was very not generally clear of clouds so yeah if it was a sunny day there's still clouds and just to see a vast open open area and that was just kind of odd it's also kind of interesting going from uh belfast to heathrow i think heathrow it seemed like whenever i've been there it's been sunny so i don't know if that's a, a place where it's more sunny than elsewhere i don't know Maybe just a coincidence. So you you flew to London to get to Chicago. Yeah, it's backwards. It's it's mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know if it's worth. <laughs> so I'm, I went to Belfast. So I could either right. I could either fly to Chicago from Chicago. I could have gotten a direct um, flight to Dublin. Right. And then from Dublin, then I could take a train to Belfast or a bus. But instead. I went from Chicago or Peoria to Chicago, Chicago to Heathrow, driving over Ireland or flying yep. over Ireland, and then from there uh, taken um, a plane to Ireland. Now, the what I could have done is I could have flown through Charlotte and from Charlotte directly into Belfast, but it was only a forty-minute layover. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, somebody said that if if you're doing an international flight, um, they have to uh, hold the plane because of luggage. But I don't know. I really want to test that. Yeah. No. So I, anyway, I've lost that bet in the past, so I, I think <laughs> <laughs> not on an international flight, but definitely on a on a on a on a you know one here in the United States. So it's not always worth betting on that. Yeah, it's 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 so incredibly stressful, uh, and so I had to go through security coming back three times. Yeah, every airport I had to go through except for the the last connection home. 
And then in Chicago, we had to also recheck our bags. That's right. Yeah, because you 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 pick them up in international. You go literally back through the system. Insane, yeah. insane. It probably I we had like I think uh yeah, we had over two hour lay. It was a three hour layover, like three hours and twenty minutes. But in the end, we only wound with like maybe about a half, not even a half an hour before we boarded. And I was we're grabbing dinner. We only had like after eating, I only had like ten minutes to actually before we started boarding it's yeah. insane yeah I've, I've routed several european trips through london and, and i always try and give a, like a day lag so i arrive in london and then i don't leave until the next day um, and that gives me time to get a hotel adjust a little bit to the new schedule and um you know see london for an hour or two so well heathrow is such a jacked up airport i thought I really thought that um, O'Hare in Chicago was bad, but Heathrow took it to a new level. Yeah. I guess I'm getting on a bus and driving around randomly until they finally get to the terminal I need. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that I guess uh, airport woes do not make for good podcasts, I suppose. So, uh, <laughs> Well, there has to be a subgenre somewhere, right? There, there has to be. <laughs> airport it, ramblings. <laughs> and I and I didn't search super super hard, but man, I could not in Belfast find any sort of uh, immediate like areas that would have RPGs for for like a store or anything. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. So. I guess they're too busy. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what it is. I guess they're too busy doing other things. Yep, must be. Whatever, whatever those other things are. But it seems like with England, I wonder per capita, it'd be interesting to know countries per capita, what the, uh, you know, what the uh, role-playing game gamers are. I mean, you know, we can deduce that certain areas of the Midwest, it's higher than maybe places out in California. But I kind of wonder what it'd be like for Ireland versus, say, London. Sure. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I guess would I guess by Ireland, I should should clarify. I was in Northern Ireland, not Ireland. Yeah. So for those of you that, or for those out there, <laughs> that demands such a distinction. Yep. So, anyhow, we we talked all sorts of things. I we had a I, I had a recording. You were kind enough to come on. Um, I was uh, had this bright idea, and I recorded the video perfectly, just no audio. So, yeah, that was about three weeks ago now. Yeah, if I just would have done the recording through, uh, just done the audio and skipped the video, I think I would have been fine. Oh, such a shame. Well, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> we can we can retouch on some topics again. <laughs> yes, we can, and and and, it, and we'll just counter like so. Some things we may, some things we may not, but that's okay because I really at this point um, can't remember. It was such a, um, I don't know, such an experience. But, yep. Experiences between now and then have kind of made things kind of hazy and vague. So, anywho, I know that originally uh, we were talking about um, you decided to. Um, well, there's a quote. Uh, the quote I heard a long time ago. I can't remember if I used it before. Was uh, freedom of the press only applies to those who own a press? Yeah. Yeah. And you and you now own a press. I, I now own a press of sorts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I I uh, you know. Publishing role-playing games and everything has started as a as a passion hobby, 
um, with the idea that I would transition over about a decade into doing it full time in retirement, you know, kind of as a as a retirement kind of career. Um, not that that meant that it had to get much bigger or anything, just that the idea was, was that I would get my kind of get the, you know, learn, learn my chops as I went over a 10 year period, kind of slowly put things out. And, uh, and I think actually probably two years ago, you and I had a brief conversation about that very thing uh, through text um, that you were thinking you were on a similar trajectory. And, um, and then uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, things took a decidedly unforeseen right turn um, and my time in academia ended. And so I left the university system that I had spent basically my entire adult career in and um, came home uh, because I was remote uh, most of the time and um, and it needed to come up with something else I wanted to do. And, and frankly, I was just not interested at the time in going back into academia. Um, I mean, I could have found another job, I'm certain, uh, here locally, but that, you know, I kind of got to a point in my life where I thought, you know, if I don't really it was a choice, right? I was either going to continue in academia and and put a whole bunch of effort into it. And that type of lifestyle is 60 plus hours a week focusing on academics, um, which is not a bad life. Don't get me wrong. There are many people who, you know, do it to great advantage. Um, and it's very fulfilling. Or I was going to pivot and find a way to make, you know, producing role-playing material and and actually doing the things that I got into academia for was the reason I went to college. I took anthropology classes to learn about cultures, to learn about how to write about cultures and things like this. And um, and I could do that full time. You know, my wife was willing to let me give that a shot and uh, and everything. And we didn't think it would destroy our budget in the process, as long as I did certain things along the way, uh, which really aren't the focus of this conversation. That was so, that like selling organs? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, this, we, we, we have we have a we have a board, and this, you know, yeah, no, uh, you know, I needed to we needed to pay off the house before my before I left academia, which we accomplished. Um, we needed to pay off my car very quickly. We're down to like the last thousand dollars on it, so it's essentially paid off. So there were certain things that had to happen, and as long as we could essentially make it finance neutral. I mean, I was, like I said, I was living and working remotely. So I had an entire condo and uh, separate utility bills and, you know, internet bills and everything at this other location where I was teaching. And um, when you subtract that from my old salary and then subtract the costs of things like the mortgage on the house that I live in, you know, that is our permanent home and all these other things, if I could get it to be revenue neutral, yes, uh, fairly revenue neutral, then, uh, then, then I think my wife and I both agreed that it was worth the risk to. Yeah, to yeah it's it. less about how much money you make and more about how much money is going out that you're spending. That's right. So if you right. can reduce the amount of money you're spending out, you need far less money coming in. That's exactly correct. And so, uh, so I was able to do. We 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 achieved most of those goals. Um, we're still finishing up the kind of the last one or two, but it was close enough that that we went ahead and, and went with it. And then. Last year, um, I started taking classes in um, in bookbinding. It's always been a passion of mine to make my own books, right? Uh, to get back to your quote, 
Um, and, uh, and I love making things by hand. Um, I feel that they have a, a contextual and a textual, you know, textural quality that is unlike anything else. Um, and, um, and they're really, you know, there, there are nice things in life and then there are really nice handmade things in life. And, um, and I've always liked making things by hand. I guess that's as kind of a similar, you know, a simple way to put it is, is I can. It's not that I am opposed to, you know, the role-playing game manufacturer who produces something in bulk in China. Those are often very beautiful products too, but they're not handmade, right? And so there's an aesthetic that I was looking to try and get to in my own work um, in terms of design philosophy and the work that goes into the writing. And then I wanted to mirror, mirror that with the design philosophy in terms of production. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, um, and so it's really a personal quest of mine. It, 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 like I said, I don't want anybody to think that it's a personal statement on my part as to someone else's work is lesser than that. Um, but I have that driving need to try and, and produce things by hand. Uh, I've always been, I've always worked with my hands in high school. Almost all of my classes were shop classes or design classes or drafting classes and, or, you know, you know, those types of things. So this was a huge, my career was a huge departure from what I was really interested in doing. And, um, and it kind of came across organically and by accident. That's like I said, another issue. Another story, but um, <clears throat> so I was taking these bookbinding courses. I was really, really enjoying them. Uh, we were producing Tales from the Smoking Worm. I was producing, uh, you know, beginning to work on other products, um, a couple of which have come out now. Um, my Smoking Worm monograph zine line, uh, issue one, has been shipping right now. This was one I showed you that it's not quite finished. I need to do some gluing, but. Um, but it, this this actually is a hybrid. It's it's a risograph print, but it features a lot of handmade things by me that get at, added to the issue, and uh, and stuff <laughs> as I explore that. And so, and then I happen to be looking for a piece of equipment called a book backer, okay, or a backer press. Now, a backer press is a cast iron press. Um, they weigh about eight hundred pounds. They're essentially one big vice. Um, they have huge cast iron wheels on them and everything. They're beautiful, but um, they serve a very specific purpose in bookbinding. Um, this is the press that you are going to put your book into before it has a cover attached to it, when it is just signatures um, sewn together and with some gluing on it and everything. You know, basically the spine has been built, um, and then you're going to use that to round over the book. So. If you if you find a handmade book or or you know a largely handmade book, mostly anything before 1890 to nineteen ten, they have this rounded spine, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And and so those were had to be achieved by hand. This is one of the last things um, that uh, books were really hard to automate, and so um, there were a lot of tools invented in the nineteen tens and nineteen twenties. And they eventually did perfect it. Um, and now we, we use something that's called a flat case binding or a dissertation binding, or a thesis binding. That's a very different type of binding than what I'm talking about. Here we have real signatures 
they're sewn together and you round them. And so I was wanting to practice that rounding technique and, and you really need uh, a backer press to do that. So I was looking for a backer press, I couldn't find one. And then I came across an ad and it just simply said, retired bookbinder, selling all my equipment in one lot, you know, had a list of the main pieces of equipment. There was a backer press in there and he was less than a hundred miles from me. And so I was like, wow, that's like perfect. And so I went and met with him. And indeed he was this re retired bookbinder who had been, that's, that had been his whole career. He had been a bookbinder for 40 plus years. His father had been a bookbinder before him. Um, he had been one of the primary bookbinders at Ohio State University before they, I guess, retired their bookbinding program. Uh, then he'd gone independent <clears throat> and he had all this equipment, everything I could ever really want to build my own books, including tons of stock, paper and card, um, what you call core, backer core, which is the, the cover stock, right. cardboard that you wrap things around, whether it's leather or paper. He had just tons of equipment. And much of it was antique. So there was, I mean, there had, there couldn't have been anything that was produced later than 1950. I'm pretty sure most of it, maybe one item, um, but almost all of it was older than that. And, and some of it, um, the big, what they call laying presses or lying presses, these are big wooden presses that you use to assemble books. Um, they were two and three hundred years old and easily, right? So this was like, this was the collection that I was hoping to assemble with some extra parts, things I didn't need, but, you know, I was willing to take them. And so we made, we, we made the decision to go ahead and buy his collection in bulk. <clears throat> and, um, and it's actually such a big collection that I couldn't bring it home. <laughs> so it's sitting wow. in a shop just down the road from me, about a mile from my house. And, um, and so while I built a garage to fit it. And uh, and everything. So so I have been refurbishing this equipment now since last November. And the first couple pieces I've been I've refurbished are um, um, foil stamping machines, right? And so so this is a foil stamped sleeve. I mean, it seems nice. so simple, right? It, it's just a piece of cardstock with some gold foil on it, and um, and yet that takes uh, quite a bit of effort to make, you know. So I'm cutting, I designed the sleeve, I cut it out on a Cricut. Um, you, you can automate that. And so that takes a couple hours to get as many pieces as you need. And then um, then I, with a flat sleeve, kind of the, you know, the template of it, you can go in and set it up on, on these stamping machines. Ah, it looks like we're having connection issues. We'll see how that works. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay, so so uh, so I I I have been refurbishing these this equipment, and I got to use it in my last Kickstarter, um, my last two Kickstarters actually. I I had a Kickstarter in December, I think it was December January timeframe, for issue four of uh, the Tales from the Smoking Worm, and then issue one, <clears throat> technically volume one, number one, of the Smoking Worm monograph. Okay, and, and this um, this sleeve goes in the back of this issue i haven't i haven't glued this one down yet um so actually we had to i had to basically have the printer double so it's a, it's a three-fold piece of paper or cardstock and then that gets glued down 
and the sleeve gets placed, and then that'll hold 18 cards, which is actually a, a lot of cards, it turns out. They're tarot size, they're pretty heavy duty, but but that doubling and gluing that stock really gives it some, some it makes it about 120 point uh, paper, so it's, it's pretty nice. Um, as a matter of fact, I think, look, I've got one right here. Here's my, uh, my personal copy of that. Pull it out, you can see it. So this is what it looks like when it's finished, right? For those of you who are just listening to the podcast, you can't see it, but this is the nicely glued together page. It's got the sleeve and then that holds the cards and everything. So, so it came together pretty nice, actually. This was a, this was a good test run. Um, And then, um, then I had a, I did another Kickstarter about two months ago, three months ago now. I guess it was March, um, called the Hangman's Garden, and uh, that's the second issue of the Smoking Worm monograph. Slightly different build. It'll actually have two pockets. One, that back page that folds over will just be glued at the edges, and then we'll mount um, a sleeve onto that, and it'll only hold about seven cards, and then it'll have environmental cards. So the location, like things I want to highlight on the map and everything, you'll have little cards to show players. So all of this stuff that I'm adding to uh, what is essentially a module or an adventure is there as part of my <clears throat> exploration of what it means to, to design material for two different audience members, right? You have two people, uh, uh, two groups of people that sit at a table and, and run an adventure. You have the person in charge, your game master, your judge, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we'll just use judge because it's a simple term here. And um, <clears throat> and then you have a player, right? Or a group of players. And there's two things going on there. Um, when you design an adventure or a module, um, it is often designed to be just read. Um, even if the person's never going to play it, as a matter of fact, I've had several people who are in top companies tell me, you really need to write these to read. It's actually why we make them so long because they read like narratives because people are basically taking them in as a story even if they never run them. So they do double duty. Um, I am not interested in that aspect of producing a module. I am interested in someone who's gonna sit down, understand what the point of the module is as a judge, run that module for some people, and have them consume it at the same time as the judge does. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Yeah, the idea is, you know, really what is the purpose? Is it to just to be read, to be an artifact to be pulled off the shelf, or is it something that's meant to be ran? Right. And so in order to explore how you can best optimize your material, even in a small form factor like what I'm working with, which is five by eight, um, a lot of things can be done design-wise to make things easier for the judge when you have events that are on different pages connected to each other um, and also make them better for the judge and the player so that the judge is not forced to think they need to get a PDF copy and print out pictures and crop them, you know, cut them out and, and, and then like hide part of it and say, well, don't look at what the adventurers are doing or, but this is the bad guy, right? I know it's in a fight scene, but it doesn't have to be a fight. I'm just telling you that. And so um, one thing you can do is you can produce um, 
adventure neutral or motivation neutral artwork. Um, you know, so you just say, this is what this person looks like, or this is what this room looks like. And also make it so that that artwork can be displayed to the player um, if you don't want to just go theater of the mind, right? And and we've seen this in the past. I mean, Tome of Horror, uh, 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 a Tomb of Horrors has that, um, Expedition to Barrier Peaks has that, and they had those little booklets that came, and you could show them, this is what the hallway looks right. like. And so the problem with that was you had four other pieces of art on that piece of paper um, or a booklet, and you said, don't look at this thing, just look at this thing. And so here, every piece of consumable is a one-off. And so that's why we made it on cards. Um, and so the player can just look at that, and you can even say, don't look at the back, but you can pass it around, right? And, and people can appreciate it. Um, on the other hand, the judge still needs to see that piece of art connected to, say, a place in the adventure that says, hey, I'm using, you know, the town guard here. This is where they're important. And so we take little vignettes of that and place them throughout the, the, the adventure itself. And they're the exact same piece of art. So they're doing double duty, but they're also mentally tying that together for a judge. Right. And you can look at a page. And you can say, ah, I need these three cards on to, to show my players who's doing what um, and things. And so, so there's a lot of different ways you can think about layout and design um, specifically to your advantage or the advantage of the person who's consuming the material to be played. And, uh, and so that's what I'm really trying to explore here. The bookbinding equipment and everything, the point of that is to have the freedom to explore that on my own. So, they, you know, when I priced out the um, these sleeves to get what I needed was going to cost $750 for these sleeves. Um, these sleeves cost me, you know, just in, just in production materials, cost me significantly less than that. Um, 300 sleeves, which is what I needed for this production run, cost approximately $40 in materials. Now, they took a lot of my time. Like I said, it took me a day, probably two days to glue everything together. Um, stamping, once I got the template laid out, took about an hour to stamp everything I needed to stamp. Um, and so what I've done is I, what you're really doing is you're shifting, you're shifting that those funds from an outside source to an inside source, right? I'm essentially paying myself to do the work. And, and and everything, which is not a bad thing. Um, you know, first of all, it, it, you know, it's my sensibility as to whether something's acceptable. You don't, and I, and I know people, for instance, on RPG zines have talked about this in the past, although it's been pretty quiet lately, um, where they get something and in the, in the product they were told they were going to get is not of the quality of what they were told it should be, um, which can cause a feel bad feeling for both the producer and the people who then get it down, down line. Um, if the producer is willing to give that to them. Is, is that generally over physical components or is it actually content? It's usually over physical components. Hey, the printer messed this up. Oh, They've yeah. told me that this is, this is within their scope of limitations. So they're not going to reimburse me the money, nor are they going to reprint it. And now you are out, you know, $2,000, right. dollars Ragged cuts, ragged yeah. cuts on the on the pages, uh, <clears throat> scuffing, whatever it may be. That's right. And so, so by moving production down 
to me. I'm in control of those decisions. And I can say, you know, then it's on me to say, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. And I can guarantee you the quality issue, um, what is acceptable acceptable to me is far more stringent than what is acceptable to the third parties that I'm paying to do the work. You know, when I, if I had to source that out. Um, so it's, it's really rare to find somebody who cares enough about your product that they're going to call you and say, Hey, this is a little off, or, you know, we need to figure out this solution because this is a problem. There are those people out there, but they're generally more expensive. And, um, you know, cause you're paying them to care. Right. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. So, so by having all of this facility at my hand and, you know, at hand, by having my own, you know, I have my own paper guillotine. They can take 17 by 22 stock, um, uh, which is the standard kind of small signature size paper at today for modern books um, <clears throat> of the size that I want to produce. Uh, by having all the all the binding presses, by having all the things that I need to produce this stuff, I can explore um, design motifs. You know, how do I present the material best? I can explore kind of um, quality motifs how do i get the best quality product for the for the least amount of investment um or basically i'm pre-investing in that quality because i because i have the tools to do that so so that's the story um it is it makes me more independent i think in many respects because i can just go down to the store or down to the shop and you know slam out a thousand of something if i need it, it you know there, there are very few things that I need other than the root-based materials, paper stock, and right. and the the materials I need to assemble that paper stock. So, and you know, I've been looking at. We have been hearing about supply line shortages, and it is true that there are supply line shortages. That, that's clearly an issue, but when I go to paper wholesalers, they have all the paper you want in stock, right? Um, so I'm having almost no setback to get custom paper to me, um, for the most well, part, but in I the think, quantities I need. Well, I think the thing is too, it, the thing is probably, it's not all paper that there's a shortage of, Yeah, you know, it's whatever the high volume type paper that, I mean, right. Cause there could be some stuff that could be the higher end doesn't move as fast. And maybe people aren't moving towards that uh, for printing when the, the cheaper stuff is, isn't available. So, I mean, yeah, really, it doesn't mean all paper's not available. It just means that the paper that of the quality and the type that they're using for, for like Mixum or yeah. Maxim or whatever it's called. <laughs> Mixum, yeah. Right. And and so, so you know, you, you just have to take it as you can. But... um. But it allows me to also allows me to explore materials. I'm really happy with that. You know, uh, each product line that I produce has a very needs to have a very specific design aesthetic, and um, and I and I and that's an intentional set of decisions. So, um, yeah. Well, and I think it allows you to produce a more uh, we'll call it a premium product in a way that's affordable. Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And so, um, so, you know, that initial investment in equipment should pay off in about five years in terms of 
costs that I would pay out otherwise in manpower. <clears throat> and then and then it lowers my cost um, quite a bit and allows me to explore less um, less, you know, well, higher quality products at a lower at a lower cost. So still not in a, you know, they're, they're, they're still expensive, relatively speaking. Uh, but but it you know it it gives me some options. And as someone pointed out, and I hadn't even thought about this, I, I guarantee you, um, you know, I started showing pictures of what I was doing and refurbishing the equipment and doing these this um this um foiling and stuff. And immediately a couple of uh, fellow zine producers were like, you know, would you be willing to do something for me? Um, and I and I hadn't even thought about the idea that I would ever become um, a service, <laughs> you know, to somebody else in in that respect. But it is possible. Um, and so, so I don't know how much ultimately that'll that'll make up of my time or income. I don't want it to subsume it, but um, but that is possible. And and there's really cool things that I can explore that that are otherwise just too expensive to really get into. So, you know, when you start thinking about custom binders and custom hardback books and things like this and moving into, you know, issues of leather and really high-end binding materials and stuff, um, you know, being able to do it yourself is a, is a real advantage. Yeah, it is. It is. And I guess that's too, it's like where I think, I I don't necessarily have the desire to to create um like a premium product, but some Kickstarters are large enough where they can offer those things. And you may want to say, hey, I want to offer like a leather bound, but you'd be the type of person to to go to potentially. Yeah. And say, yeah, I I need uh and price that out. Because it's it's kind of confusing. I mean, you can you can set up for, you know, some of the 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 um the smaller presses or even larger presses, they're not really set up to do a lot of the very custom stuff, but you, right. You could offer those things very easily. Yes. And, and they would noticeably look like those things. I mean, I, I've been surprised at some of the Kickstarters that's that have leather uh, versus synthetic leather options. And you look at the two side by side. And other than the fact that they maybe chose different color options, they're indistinguishable, right? You know, those leather products don't feel like handmade leather products should. They feel like mechanized leather products, and uh, that's a totally different aesthetic. So, um, yeah, yeah, and I think for you, you're still not necessarily running everything through uh, through this 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 uh, mechanical press, right? Because you are still offering, like for smoking worm, you're still offering like a there's like a two sets of so like for the monograph was strictly the monograph, but are you are you planning in the future doing like some product through one channel, the mass production, and then more premium of the same product under the more uh, boutique. Yeah, so so there there comes a time, even in a boutique boutique industry, when um, you do want to recognize that not everybody desires that or wishes to invest the money in that. Um, and I acknowledge that. That's that is a real thing. Um, and so what I generally tend to do uh, and the thinking so far has been to offer a for instance in, with smoking worm the first 300 or the we have a limited first run that's uh printed on risographic paper or with a risographic method 
on high-end um, uh, archival quality paper, um, often has custom features like fold-out pages, things you can't get from a producer like Mixam. And then, um, and then we design the Mixam version, um, you know, to be a mass consumed one. It's slightly cheaper, um, but, um, but it's also produced cheaper and it doesn't have those nice features and, uh, and it doesn't have the longevity um, and stuff. So, you know, that's not built into it and, um, and everything. And, and at a certain point, I don't want to, not to belittle the product, but you know, I don't want to spend all my time continuously remaking Tales from the Smoking Worm number one, right? I mean, that was that's a great product. Um, we use it, like I use it in my home game just about all the time, almost every session. But, um, and so I think it has a lot of good utility to it, but I don't want to have to spend most of my time reprinting the exact same thing in a limited, you know, in a high quality format. That's done. I'd like to move on to other projects and um, and learn from that experience so yeah so we do offer a, a what we call standard versions um which are more mass market you know produced but one of the things i've noticed about mixam is they do have a 110 pound cover stock um gosh i think they had 120 at one point but 110 is where i where i've seen it go to recently and at 110 pound cover stock it could still, for instance, hold one of these um, sleeves with for cards. And so I think um, I'm, I'm going to do some tests, but I think um, like the monograph series may end up in a standard edition still with sleeves. I don't know if that'll reduce the cost any um, in the long run, but but, you know, it, it, it the, the 110 cover stock definitely holds up to that. So and that's a limitation that, like, for instance, risographic printers can't or as far as i've been told can't take 110 uh, you know pound cover stock they kind of max out at about 75 okay so um and depending on the printer on the peep the manufacturer of the paper 65 pound 75 pound 80 pound cover stocks can be interchangeable um it's not a you know they use the term pound but it's not a universal constant as far as i can tell yeah from and, my understand yeah each each of the paper manufacturers it's different, like, and yeah. I don't understand. You would think it would be, but it's not. But it, like a set uh, area of paper and so many sheets, and then what does right. it weigh? It's what you'd think. You're like, okay, a thousand eight and a half by eleven sheets weighs fifty pounds. Okay, or or whatever it is. Yeah, right? is is it a weight thing, or is it? I've always wondered. Is it a is it a tear test? Like this paper can withstand sixty five pounds of pressure. You know, I mean, whatever it is, the point is, is it's not standard. And if you have two publishers that say, I have 65 pound cover stock, you should get a cop, uh, get some of each and try it against each other because they're not going to be the same. So, yeah, that just brings uh, funny thoughts in my mind of. Uh, so I went to um, I went to a a a, a facility that made uh, safety glass for cars. And they would, they would, they had a test where they would um, put the windshield on the ground, has like a fixture for it. And then they had a ladder and they had like a, a bearing, a metal bearing that was about the size, I don't know, like of a small orange. And then they would drop it. And yeah. then that was how they would determine, you know, how, 
and and it's two pieces of glass that uh, in between it's sandwiched uh, is latex. So that's what binds the two together and keeps everything from coming apart. Right. And uh, so that that you know, so in my mind now I'm thinking of the same kind of thing as somebody on a ladder. <laughs> it's exactly it. right. <laughs> well, and they've done that like for wood, you know, in the construction industry. I visited a lab at Purdue University in their um in their construction materials department. And they literally had these hydraulic and pneumatic presses and pull pullers and stuff like this. And they would work out torsion shearing and and how much raw energy could a two by four take if it's made out of, you know, spruce versus, you know, southern pine versus northern pine and everything. Yeah. And they have these material, you know, specifications for all this stuff. So, yeah, I, that's exactly what when I hear pound paper, I think that should be able to withstand so many pounds of pressure or something. Yeah. Uh, but make your weight. Maybe it's the weight. Yeah, but I don't. I, if it was, then it would be simple. And they say it. And it would be a. It would be the same for every company. Yeah, you would think. And so, so yeah, I don't. I have no idea. So, anyway, um, you know, to me, this is a. It's a, it's a journey. The production, you know, making things is always a journey. Um, and I think you and I have talked about that. I know you've talked about that with other people in the past. Um, you know, it 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 can be a journey to get it and consume it. But it's a real journey and a process to produce it, and um, and it's a it's a journey that I'm really fascinated with. Um, no matter whether you produce it with a high end paper stock and and all these other you know add ons and stuff, or whether you're you're printing it at Mixam or whether you're hand making it on a photocopier, um, you know that journey is uh, is important to the individual who makes it. And we're kind of in an industry with the you know the rpg zine indie press kind of industry is is one where that journey is important to the individuals who make it and uh, and i think that's a cool thing um and so uh so my my goal is to kind of experience it and uh, and hopefully not break the bank <laughs> as i do it yeah and i think too i mean i think you also have a little bit of history uh, with your products and having a line really helps. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you can necessarily always predict accurately, but you get a good feel of where things are and where things are headed. Yeah, I think, I definitely think um, that the smoking worm team has a better idea of how things are going to go today than we did when we first launched issue one, where it was just like, you know, we were trying to figure out budgets and, and I and eventually I just kind of threw my hands in the air and said, let's just assume it doesn't matter for issue one. We'll print it. We'll pay for it. And if we make enough money to pay for it, that's great. But if we don't, we still have an idea of how much it costs us to make it. Right. And. Um, and now. You know, I'm I, I'm finding that I I kind of know the page count or the word count that I need to fill 60 pages consistently, um, and and how much my budget for art is going to look like and and things like that. Well, it is a fair amount of of uh, a a leap of faith. I mean, you 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 really don't know till you do it. No, you don't. You don't. No, and and I I agree with you. And it's <clears throat> every one of those Kickstarter projects and every one of the products that i've produced is a leap of faith you know when we did smoking smoking worm monograph number one and that's a that's an amazing thing to me is to have people who consume this 
who are willing to take that leap of faith for you when you can't perfectly describe what it is you're doing, right? I mean, at, at a certain point, sometimes my Kickstarter comes down to, we have an idea. I can tell you in words what it looks like. I can't show you a picture because I haven't done it, right? <laughs> right? You just have to trust that it's going to be awesome. Right, because I remember, uh, even though I should bring up my much-delayed Fane of the Fly God, I kind of would bring it up to people, and it got got kind of a lukewarm reaction, but when I actually showed somebody the, the manuscript, and it was like, like, then it made sense. It's like, you can yeah. kind of talk abstractly, but once you really see the fruition, or the direction, or the magnitude, you know, then it becomes something different. And it's just, it's, it's hard to grasp. Um, so and some of these things, well, the sleeves and how they work out, you're like, yeah, so what? But then when you see how it actually looks on a zine and how it folds in and how the graphic of the, of the cards look really nice with the sleeve and it fits into that little indentation, that face fits in perfectly. I mean, did that come out great? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Then you're like, okay, now I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so it, you know it just takes and that's the great thing about kickstarter is it allows us to produce that product with a with some support right um and and i think the more of them that you do the more people are willing to as far my experience has been you know throw you the the you know the the life preserver so that you can you know you can get out of deep water and survive the event well and i think too <laughs> is so when you when you waited the first kickstarter did you have the product done to a certain I mean, what what point what percentage of completion did you have the product when you went to kickstarter for the first smoking worm oh that's a good question uh issue one we had rough layouts for but i i want to state outright that what i mean by rough layouts are really rough layouts i think we relayed the whole thing out in the during the time of the first kickstarter and we were and we we had not yet found the workflow that allowed us to um, how do I want to put it that allowed us to quickly and easily uh, integrate artwork into a layout. And so you know, I would have an idea on my in my brain and i would I would do a little thumbnail sketch of what I thought the the layout should look like. But the mismatch between and, and where the art should go. And I'm like, oh, that would look cool. And that would look cool. And that would look cool, right. But the mismatch was I didn't yet have the experience to know how many words per page I was going to get on my books. And and so I would I would lay it out and say it needs to look like this. And then we would lay it out and it would not look like that because we had twice as many words as I thought we had. Um, and so. <clears throat> we have now figured out that in a booklet like we produce, Tales from the Smoking Worm, you are going to get about 420 to 450 words per page. Um, and and so the other thing we've thought about, we've learned, is how to lay it out to maximize the impact of the art. I think, for instance, if you look at Smoking Worm 4, um, the art is, I mean, it's incredible. It really is. It, it's it's an it, it it is amazingly, you know. Even though it's the last thing it gets produced, it's the thing that drives the visual for the entire issue, and it does it in a really great way. And and that doesn't exist in issue one because we hadn't figured out how to do that yet. 
And so, um, so those are things they teach you in design school. They talk about, but until you get your hands, you know, muddy, you can't figure them out for yourself viscerally with a specific size product. And I think that's a critical thing to realize that we work at a very specific size. It's consistent. And, and I have dabbled with layouts for larger sizes. And, um, and I think there's a whole new learning process that has to happen there too. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there's some things I'm, I'm working on too, where I'm trying to get a more consistent. Uh, some of the stuff I'm working now on is uh, going to be things that will be coming out consistently. And yeah. it'll be likewise trying to get that format down because reinventing a format or layout every time is, is not, um, is not productive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it can work it, but you're right. It, it, it's time consuming. And, right. Uh, so, and so you're so playing with font, font choice, font size. I mean, you start going through all those things, you know, margins, you know, space between columns, you know, I mean, you can start playing around with sizes and formats and then you just find yourself spending a lot of time, um, you know, but once you have something kind of down, not saying you can't have variation, it just definitely takes a lot of the, of the uh, trial and error out of it in the exploration phase. Yeah. And, and since we're producing a serial, almost like a magazine, right? Um, it's, it, it, you know, there's issue one, there's issue two, there's issue three, so on and so forth. Um, that format is something that you come to expect. And for readers who have read all those issues, it's something they rely on to understand where they're at within an issue. Yeah. Right? And so, so once you start laying down that visual language, you need to continue that visual language unless you're going to do a big shakeup. Um, and that, that visual language creates stability, no matter how chaotic it is, no matter how crazy it may look, it, the consistency of application allows readers to understand it and continue to appreciate it and find comfort from it and find things in it, right? Because they know how to work with it. And so, and, and, you know, that's an important aesthetic when you're creating a serialized publication. So, so, and, and, you know, what, one of the things that we find interesting is, is working that out differently for each of the different product lines that we produce, you know? So, so for instance, smoking word monograph is slightly different, has a different look. Um, it's much more vertical um, and that's intentional. I want it to look different, even though it's the same size as um, Tales from the Smoking Worm. When you look at it, it doesn't look like it's the same size because it looks taller um, and um, and thinner. So so that's a very important design aesthetic, different than Smoking Worm, and it's intentionally different, and there's reasons for that. So uh, yeah, yeah, you you know those types of things, I think really sell the art. In what I mean by art, not just the physical art, but but the um, the art of what you're trying to do aesthetically, right? The design, and um, and so and they help your product, right? And they're fun. Yeah, and I know I went from uh, so like for Journey of the Madlands, I decided that that large format just just wasn't tenable to continue. So now I'm kind of looking at rejiggering the whole thing, but yet yeah, still trying to keep, but still trying to keep the same kind of aesthetic. But uh, yeah, it just it just it just wasn't it's not viable to go that direction. 
So what did you find was unviable about it? Cause it's essentially an eight and a half by 11 form, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I think I needed a little bit more content. It's just the pricing. I probably, I needed to charge probably, I probably need to think I was charging about 20 bucks. I think I don't need to be charging like 30 for it. It's just yeah. 28. Yeah. I, I need to charge about $28 per zine and maybe, maybe, maybe there is a market for that. Um, but I just, that just, it just, um, yeah, it, it, it just, it, I think really what I need to do, it just needs to be smaller and just come out more often is really what it needs to happen. Right. And so, and so some of your previous guests have talked about that issue where you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. If you're making a, making your books too, too big right yeah. I mean, too dense because you could get two zines out of that and in terms of profit maximization and everything like this and and i think it's important to understand that from a production side of things you want to make a beautiful product and you want to make a product that's part of why you're doing this but you also need to make it in some way profitable so that you can continue to do this whether that's a part-time hobby or it's your full-time job um if you are losing money and if you're selling too many words for the price you're selling them at, you're losing money. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's a problem. And maybe it's a problem you're willing to accept, but it, you know, it, it can become untenable over time. And so, yeah, so you've got to figure that out. Yeah. So I think it, it and I don't regret doing it, but it just, and, and the problem is pricing and, you know, I could price it higher. It's just, you don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's what's hard. I need to have all realities that I can look at. So yeah. there's a reality where I sold it for $25. Uh, there's another reality where I sold it for $28. There's another reality. Um, so the, but the main thing is I really wanted this to be either biannual or maybe even triannual if possible. Biannual. Right. And so one is getting other people to consistently write in addition to my, just myself and to get content, that's also key. But the other one is just to get the amount of content under control and also get the costs down. So, yeah, I think, and I think, you know, it comes down to, um, you know, and maybe there's an opportunity for, you know, the boutique, whatever, but, and, there, and it did sell fine. It made, it made money. Um, it didn't, I didn't lose any money on it. I was able to pay everybody. It was, you know, it worked out fine. But uh, it's just, it just, yeah, without it jacking the price up, I just didn't feel like it's viable to continue. Sure. Sure. And if I jack up the price, I don't, it, I don't know. That I really want to do that either. That makes sense. Um, you know, like I said, you got to find that balance. So. Yeah. And I think I'm going to try, I think I may also, I think what I may also do is, um, Try pricing. I may actually try and do the full um, range. Well, before it was color, that's what it was going to be. There was no if, ands, or buts about it. So what I may do uh, for the next one is to, um, if it funds to a certain level, make it color, you know, or, you know, go along those lines. Um, and and because I've not done that before, pretty much everything was set in stone. Uh, it is what it is, but I may allow some variation based on how all the Kickstarter forms do to 
either add material, some material that's already been written or to add color or to increase the, the you know, the uh, paper quality. Right. Yeah. And those are decisions you have to make, right? And so, you know, what I find interesting is that <clears throat> your average consumer doesn't think of all these little choices that go into how you price things, you know, what the physical realities of your product are and stuff like that. So. Yeah, and you're right. And ultimately, what I'd like to do is be like you. Everybody wants to be like you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> is uh, on either side, though. <laughs> is uh, yeah, I'm I'm in a position potentially in about two and a half years where I can I can retire from my job. I still need to make money, but I may I'm trying to get a position where I can at least get a, a steady, reasonable income from from the hobby. Doesn't have to be a lot of money, but if I can make between ten or twenty thousand a year, um, that would be definitely a feather in my hat and make that decision easier. Yeah, I mean, it kind of justifies. I think of it like this, you know. I mean, we're both married. Um, I've been married twenty-seven years now. I think you've been married about a similar length of time, and and you know, I don't know about you, but I see my mortality on on the horizon. <laughs> it's not imminent. Hopefully, but but I understand that I probably have less days ahead than I have behind me, and and I have to be able to justify to my you know to my wife and everybody else that why I'm putting time into this right and and part of that is 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 the reality of contributing to the family um, and making it worthwhile and you know otherwise I I should do something else. Um, and then part of it yeah. is is the argument of this is a this is an internal satisfaction thing, you know. This is like somebody who has a good garden or has a great garden, and they spend all their time in the garden, and they do lots of work in the garden, and they buy plants for their garden, and you know, the plants consume their purchases because they're buying so many cool plants for their garden because they want the garden to be beautiful and they want to you know explore it and live in it and work with it. And that same metaphor works. I think for those of us who produce kind of indie zines, right? Our garden is our library of material and the game we play and, and things like that. Well, and I think too is, you know, you know, while we do this, you know, for, you know, many of us do this for, to make some money at least. Um, there's also relationships that we're, we're building along the way. And it's also yeah. kind of like, I'm not necessarily looking to, you know, exploit other, well, exploit might be another thing. I, I kind of want to do fair to everybody. Like that's really my, my goal too. It's like, it's not just about making money, but it's, it's actually, you know, being able to afford art and pay it, pay an artist for their art, you know, yeah. finding people that write and pay them a, a reasonable rate for their work, for their, uh, for the writing. I mean, it, it's all those sorts of things. You know, I want to be profitable, you know, for Madlands, I really want to be profitable not only so I can make money, so I could pay people really well as well. Right. And I mean, you know, and so if you look at the number of people involved in like Tales from the Smoking Worm between issue one and issue five, it steadily goes up. Right. I mean, it goes up actually pretty quick. And so, you know, we have copy editors and diversity editors and I have artists and the stable artists is changing all the time and growing. And 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 for the first time, I think issue five i'll have to think about issue four but yeah i'm pretty much sure that for the first time issue four issue five has a new author that is not part of the original kind of trio and um 
and so or 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 somebody who was part of our gaming group um and so this is the first time we're bringing in an outside author in and uh, and you know you want you're right you want to be able to pay that author a fair rate but balanced onto that is a fair rate at what you can afford right i mean there is a limit right, right. and 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 so you know i mean when you ask the question what is fair uh, i find that a lot of people view it only from the author's perspective and 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 sometimes i in those conversations i have I, I try and balance it with the publisher's perspective right which is what you are at that point right and so and I, there's a limitation right and by fair i mean obviously you know an idea is uh it, it's kind of interesting so like this is a little side uh jaunt but so i was listening to a podcast uh and we uh morse's um i forget morse's podcast the uh the end world podcast uh morris yeah, uh i've never huh? listened to it but, but anyway it the, makes the gal, sense that he's got one he hired this gal uh to be his run the business basically um and she used to run an internet or a a gaming cafe okay and then she and she stated that when well, she ended up uh and she kind of gave her insights on the whole thing why she started and how it worked but she ended up getting out of it because she did not believe that she could continue paying, uh, that she could not maintain her ethical standards in uh, compensating her employees, which included paid days off. Yeah, makes sense. So, so but here's what I find interesting. Let's say you 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 are you own a game cafe. And I really want to work at a game cafe. And you say, Jeff, I really can't afford to give you, I can't give you paid vacations. And I can only pay you $11 an hour. I'd be like, okay, that's fine. That's what I really want to do. And I'm willing to, but then you say, well, Jeff, if I can't pay you $15 an hour and I can't give you two weeks of paid vacation every year, I'm not even going to have a business. And I'm just gonna close the door. I'd rather I'd rather not have a business than to pay you eleven dollars an hour, and, <laughs> even though that's what you want. It's like yeah, it's kind of interesting that it's the same thing here. So there are people willing to 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 work for me for three, like say three cents a word, but I really don't want to be paying people three cents a word. Right. You know, you know I want it to be higher, but then that's where the Kickstarter I think works out nice. You could say, you know what, I think I can afford. I think I can afford x and i will pay you x but then you can also set up your kickstarter in a way to say you know if it does better than this then i'll pay you you know y it goes past a certain point then z and then if you have a very successful kickstarter then then everybody can benefit from it but what those numbers are it's not always clear and you're right at the end it's like i could be one to pay all the, the people but in the end you know if i'm if i'm doing all this other work you know there's also a point where as a publisher i need to be compensated as well yeah. So it's it's you know, it's it it's hard. It's not easy. Yeah. I mean, what ideally you want the metaphor or you know, a rising tide or you know, right, you know, you know, lifts all boats. Lifts all boats to be a reality and you need to remember that you're a boat too. Yes, exactly. Right? Um and uh, and so so you know, the reality that doesn't always work out. Um and so so those are the hardships or, 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 you know, trials and tribulations of, of being a self-publisher. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and, and hopefully we're not lamenting too heavily about it. It just acknowledging the reality of it, I think is important sometimes. So, um, well, it is. And I think the other thing too, it's like, I got one guy working on, so they got one guy working on a, 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 a mini adventure. Yeah. And I have another guy who uh, will be writing an essay. And, you know, so the, the person writing the venture is going through the crucible. Yeah. The person writing the essay is, is just chugging along because he's going to have a merry old time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, you know, and there it goes too. It's like, you know, word count in that case doesn't necessarily equate to, you know, the sweat and the blood uh, that shed. And so, you know, there's, there's also that aspect, especially you're saying, I want this to be a, old school essential style adventure where you're actually cutting the word count count down probably considerably over a, a traditional adventure. And so it's, you know, it's trying to weight all these things as far as what's, you know, reasonable and equitable, but also people are still willing to do it, but you just don't want to be taking advantage of people. So it's maybe not taking advantage if they agree to it, but you know what I'm saying? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and where that line sits um, is an important thing but it's certainly not clear in all aspects. Exactly. And it's kind of uh, not to get like morbid, but I will go ahead and get morbid. It's kind of like, um, you know, people uh, towards the end of life where they're living uh, will or whatever it's called, where they say, you know, about being resuscitated. Yeah. Yeah. They have their do not resuscitate orders. And they're like, you know, I've, I understand what it means to do open heart resuscitation. And it means you're going to break all my ribs. Right. And I don't want to live like that. Right. right. But the thing is, people will, will make a statement thinking that it's clear. But the problem is, is when the reality hits. Yeah. And, and you know, the, you know, the, the, inter, the idea of intervening, you know, I don't want, you know, if I'm going to die, I don't want people intervening. Well, what if you're choking? Yep. I mean, you could start going down. You realize that you think things are clear, but when you start hitting the specifics, rubber hits the road, you're looking like, you're like, this is not clear. <laughs> no. And, you know, and at those moments, it's so, it's so overrided with, with emotion. And, um, that it's really hard to do. Yeah. To, to make those decisions. Right. And which is why it's really nice to make them in advance when you're, when, when everything's cold. But and you methodical, can't. Like you giving really an antibiotic. Can't. A person will die with you don't give them the antibiotic. You give them the antibiotic. And yeah. you say, well, you could withhold the antibiotic and maybe they'll die a nice, peaceful death. But you give them the antibiotic and they'll live. But what if this person has Alzheimer's? I mean, it starts becoming a very complicated thing where initially you think something is pretty cut and dry, but it's not. And same thing with, with this sort of thing in publishing. It's like, it seems like it. But then when you start looking into the details, you're like, there's a lot of complications. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's not easy. You kind of have to work those out. And I think the thing is, it's like, you know, I think we all try and come up with, you know, what we feel is right and ethical and, uh, and it can vary because it's not necessarily, <laughs> there is no necessary right answer. And right. sometimes, and sometimes you just have to navigate through that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it can be an absolute minefield, right? And, and what the decisions you make in a moment when there isn't a lot of time to think about it you know, something just has to be, you, a decision must be made, right? Because to 
not make a decision is making a decision in some level. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, in the past, mainly because people, we've been splitting money or doing different things, I've been very clear about the finances. I, I mean, yes. everything's laid out because then we, in the Madlands, we, we split. So I was very clear exactly, you know, where all the, the costs were and who's been paid what. But, you know, but if I've got a project where I show that, and maybe we're not splitting it, but people are getting paid. But now I'm paying a person to do a map much higher rate than I am somebody doing interior art. You know, if I only am the only one that knows about it, it's not a big thing. But if you want to be open about, you know, how, how you run your business, maybe you're not going to be showing those things. Or maybe you are, but then you start thinking, well, wait a minute. It's, it's like, I'm paying this person this rate. This other person's doing me a real good job by going at a lower rate. It, you realize uh, it, it starts becoming complicated. No, you're right. And, and, and so, you know, one of the ways that I navigate that is um, I always ask artists to set their own rates at the beginning. Yeah. What are what are your rates? And then um, with and I let them know. It, you know, um, there is no disagreement from me that you are worth what you're asking for, right? I, I fully support that. What I you know, but I may not be able to pay that, and so so. Um, let me know what your rates are. And if I can afford that, I'll let you know, you know, and we can move forward, but I'm certainly not going to short an artist and say, you know, I, I you know, I, or at least I try not to short an artist and say, you know, I just can't pay that, you know? Um, well, I'm thinking more the other way. Let's say somebody's willing to do it uh, at a very reasonable rate. Yeah. But then you say, yeah, but I'll pay $200 for a map. Right. You know, and like, and I'm not saying the maps are, I mean, there's a lot to them. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, but then all of a sudden you're thinking, well, you know, then is it equitable to the, and, and that's where it becomes hard. But I think that's where Kickstarters are kind of nice. So if you're doing really well on a Kickstarter, you can just pay a person a bonus. Yep. You don't yep. have to negotiate a rate in there. You can also just say, you know what, this is very successful. This person was great and on time. You have another hundred bucks or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of, pays off with good karma you know i mean you know it carries forward when you can do that oh yeah i mean really you know you're right because i think the thing is is it's a it's a lot of trust <laughs> you know all the way around i mean you can yeah this industry well when i say industry you know this tiny tiny industry but you know it's like you know i have people doing things i have, I have people that have done work for me uh up front without getting paid i've had people who want to get paid up front i've had people that want to get paid you know half the beginning half at the end i've had somebody who's who's doing some art for me um well known but he just started working on it has not there's been no money down yet it's just like there's a lot of variations so some people are very trusting but the idea is you know if you're wanting to be in any way continue uh in this industry, you want to be somebody that's trustworthy and that people will want to work with because people will um, let other people know when things aren't so cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I agree. So um, you're going to be able to get back on track in terms of RPG ramblings now, do you think? Or are you going to 
pull yeah, it back a bit. You you are uh you no, I I plan on going full speed ahead. Um of course it's hard to say because I just did this Google Drive thing. Um not Google Drive, but Google Meet. Uh, we'll see if I can get the splice together. But the plan will be is to keep the schedule. I like to get a few episodes ahead or a couple, well, maybe at least one or two episodes ahead and keep going. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, the the being frozen in carbonite was, uh, yeah, it's just being gone for seven weeks is a very surreal, surreal experience. Well, you've lost that time and yet you were super busy. I mean, it was clear you, you were busy. Um, you know, but also, you know, I find that that kind of time away from things often helps um, my mind percolate on ideas and everything. So, I mean, hopefully you came back with a whole bunch of notes. So um, what what did happen is I worked on, so I've, I've got a best year I'm doing for Old School Essentials. Right. I, I worked on a second, I did the writing for the second one. So I think I got a draft, draft for most of them on the second. And I might have started kind of outlining for stuff for the third. I also wrote the, I also wrote a setting. I wrote a uh, enclave for Journey in the Madlands. And so once I got back home right now, I've got, um, I got a manuscript for Journey in the Madlands for the adventure. I'm, I'm going through back working with the author. I got another manuscript. Um, so what's my second manuscript? Another manuscript from another person who uh, is uh, giving me some materials. So I went through and we're working through that. And I got a third manuscript for, um, so I was working for, um, so Continual Light, um, Eric Tankars, I don't know if you're familiar with Continual Light. No, I've never heard of it. So it's it's basically a stripped down swords and wizardry, like very, okay. very stripped down, like very, very, very stripped down. So anyway, uh, so Eric's a very generous person. Um, but anyway, I'm doing the layout, redesign, not the, not changing the text, but complete redo of that. And the plan was to launch this uh, for a Kickstarter. Okay. But circumstances occurred. And uh, this was pretty much done, mostly done. I was kind of planning on maybe going to Kickstarter with this on in July or August. But then I got um, a manuscript for a setting for this. Um, like, this is great. Throw, you know, throw into, I say throw into my lap. It's not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. It's like I got a manuscript to add to this now. That's a, a setting, an adventure, and additional rules. That, that needs, now that needs to be formatted and laid out and edited. And I'll probably commission some art. So now where this was probably going to be occurring is now going to be, you know, this year is probably going to be occurring, you know, in early 2023. Sure. It's going to slow you down a bit. So, but I got stuff happening. I mean, there's stuff happening. It's just a matter of, uh, so right now, Thane, I'm, I'm doing my last pass of my edits. Uh, my daughter needs, um, um, so the cover art and the, and the layout's kind of been on stall since I've been gone. So I'd like to get that done by the end of the month. The OSE bestiary, the first one I should, I'm trying to have it all done. And I think about going, maybe going to kickstart with that on in July. And then with Thane, hopefully in October. And then Continual Light, hopefully in January. 
and then hopefully mad lands in a couple months after that and um we'll see sure. from there yeah <clears throat> that's that's a pretty similar schedule to what i'm thinking so i mean i'm i'm i spent today I guess I'm 80% done with uh, with the Kickstarter page for issue five of Tales from the Smoking Worm, and that'll go hopefully live next week. Um, and it's going to wrap up kind of a series of adventure of uh, of articles that we've had, and it'll blow out some stuff and and kind of clear the air. And then um, I'm 90% 95% done on writing for issue six. Um, it's also been through developmental editing and everything except for one article, essentially, and um, that I'm struggling with. I just I just need the time to sit down and focus on it. And um, and then same with issue seven. Issue seven is 85, 90 percent written as well. Also has one article that's outstanding at this point. And. Um, so those I'm hoping to put out, if I get a Kickstarter out this next week. I'm hoping to fulfill that. This is a much more stripped down single issue Kickstarter. It's not complicated or it shouldn't be complicated. And so I'm hoping to fulfill it right very quickly. So I'm hoping to go to print in July, hopefully, but, but I, I set a September deadline for, for fulfillment because things always get in the way. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I'm hoping to get issue six and seven out this year too. And then uh, maybe issue eight which is a kind of a holiday themed issue. So it's something we're working on. that's a little different and it's still got quite a bit of writing to do, but then issue nine is almost completely written as well. That's exciting. So what that, what that means is, is that I'm, I'm like only a couple of weeks away from having the next, you know, nine months to a year's worth of smoking worms completely written, locked down and in some form of editing or design or a layout. I mean, and um, and then that'll allow me to. There'll be one more smoking worm monograph this year. Um, it's well outlined. I've started kind of thinking through it. It's going to be very different. It, it again is a. It's it's a. It's a very. It, it's it's not that it's a very involved project, but it's a very. It's a very different style of project. And um, and so that'll be the last thing I'm hoping to get done this year. And couple of those issues of smoking worm will probably be early next year so so yeah so i've got i got a lot of things on the horizon and then we have an, another line of product i've had that i've had the first issue of it done since august of last year and um, it's been sitting there while i think about it and how i want to present it and get the format just right so um so i talked with uh with my uh, layout person who's also my daughter um caitlin stamper and uh and so we go back and forth on it and every month or two we pick it up and kick it around and refine it so anyway yeah so there's lots of projects to do i yeah that's why that's why i would like to be like yourself uh where i can (laughs) have more free time to to actually i I would want to do this for for 40 or 60 hours a week i sure would like to be working on at least 20 hours a week yeah i agree I think that's a, I think it's a good, you know, sometimes I put 30 hours in sometimes 40, but, but there, you know, I've got a lot of obligations to family and stuff too. So, um, you know, uh, I'm taking care of parents and things is taking up more of my time now. And so those things have to, you know, all the zine stuff fits in around that. So, right. um, 
having the flexibility. Yeah, to that's what I say. You're flexible now. That, that that's huge. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And in fact, for me, it's like you know, I may have all these plans, but you know, it's just it's you know, it's it's very optimistic. You know, I think it all works <laughs> in my head, but reality. <laughs> You know, I, I totally understand. That's exactly right. Yeah, but, uh, I don't, and I don't think I'll be going back to Ireland, but you know that. I mean, that that's always a possibility too. So, well, if you do go back, at least you'll be more prepared for what you're going to experience there, and uh, able to prep for it. Maybe take better advantage of your time. Yeah, well, the 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 I don't say the mistake, but so the nice thing is it was a, a four day work week, but the the week the Monday through Thursday really was. Uh, work until five, getting back to the hotel at five thirty, and when you go to eat there, it's it's an hour and a half to two hour affair. So I, you go out to eat, and then come back, <laughs> come back, call the wife, and then I would go through what I uh, the three S's: shower, Seinfeld, and sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like Monday through Thursday. Fridays I was I was just wiped out, and usually Saturdays we tried to go somewhere. Yeah, uh, and I try to get some writing in at least two days a week, three. But, but it was a lot of was just spent just walking and looking and talking and people and just um, I, it was just I don't know how to describe it. Now I'm sure some of the stuff may not directly ever come out in in gaming, but definitely, um, yeah, it's it, some stuff will leak out. But yeah, it was pretty surreal. Yeah, I understand. So, yeah. Well, I think we're probably hitting about the limit. I think you've got uh, duties. I do. <laughs> and thank you for joining me. And hopefully I can stitch this Frankenstein, uh, <laughs> these two segments together as a Frankenstein monster and it will live. Hopefully. If not, let me know. Always happy to come on and chat with you, Jeff. Uh, hey, thanks again. Eventually. Thanks yep. again, Trevor.